one of my aims as a pediatrician, as a mother, and as a health and wellness coach is to help people feel good in the moment, but to also decrease the risk of chronic disease. And we know that 80 to 90% of chronic diseases can be prevented through our diet and lifestyle choices. How can you add more beans? How can you add more fruits and vegetables? Start there, avoid being this all or nothing mindset where you have to be 100% quote clean eating or something bad's going to happen because that's just not the way the human body works. Support and foster and sustain this intuitive ability that children have. You're showing them that you trust them and in turn, they learn to trust themselves. Hello and welcome to Slice in Time with me, Linda, host and creator of Woodlands, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay in touch and keep up to date by following Woodlands on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find comprehensive show notes with references and further reading related to this episode and more content on my website, lindadaz.com forward slash Woodlands 23 for this particular episode. Please also note that this is a podcast for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as individual medical advice. In this episode, I was so pleased to have U.S. pediatrician Dr. Yami Kazorla Lancaster as my guest. We discuss plant-based nutrition in childhood and beyond, as well as picky eating, whether dairy is necessary in our diets, and how to escape diet culture mentality and raise confident, intuitive eaters. Let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Could you introduce yourself for those who don't know you? Sure. My name is Dr. Yami. I'm a board certified pediatrician, also a certified lifestyle medicine physician and a national board certified health and wellness coach. And I'm very passionate about lifestyle medicine, but also plant-based nutrition for not just children, but also moms raising those children. But I also love to integrate intuitive eating and other positive feeding practices so that parents learn not just what to feed their kids, but how to feed their kids. That's awesome. I'm really excited to have you on the show. And so I thought we could start with just like a little yes or no question because it is a yes or no answer. And that is, are fully plant-based diets safe for all stages of child development? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. So we'll get into it a bit more, but just to kind of set that at the start. Um, So I feel like a lot of the time focus gets put on the horror stories, the news stories where it's like this vegan child was maltreated by the parents because of the vegan diets and things like that. Um, and that gets the most attention and then healthful vegan, healthful plant-based diets rather don't really get the same coverage. Um, so I want to talk about the benefits rather than focusing on the negatives. Um, so if we could talk a little bit about what the benefits are for children uh, in terms of following a plant-based diet and the evidence that's out there to support it. Yes. So here in the United States where I'm based, a study just recently came out that children are now consuming 70% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. So we know that the standard American diet or the standard westernized diet is very high in processed foods, high in added sugars, high in added fats, and very low in fiber. When it comes to deficiencies, a lot of people worry about eating a plant-based diet because they're worried they're going to get deficient in something. But what they don't realize is that there's already a major deficiency going on in the westernized world, and that's fiber. 
fiber is so deficient and so low in not just adults, but in children. And fiber is critical for our health and well being. Not only does it help with digestion, which is what a lot of people know it for, it helps keep you regular because constipation is one of the most common chief complaints in pediatricians' offices, but it also helps you stay full and keeps you satisfied so that you end up consuming fewer calories so you're not overeating unconsciously, but it also feeds our healthy gut bacteria. So whenever we're eating a plant-based diet, especially one that's centered around whole foods, we are getting a lot more fiber than we would from the standard American diet or the standard westernized diet. So fiber is the number one thing I like to talk to people about because I think people understand fiber, but what they don't realize about fiber is how important it is and how much it does and how it's critical to our health and well-being and longevity. The second thing is antioxidants. So whenever we're eating a lot of processed foods, and of course, when we're eating animal products, the antioxidants are very low, but when we're eating whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, they're exploding with antioxidants and phytonutrients and all of these amazing nutrients in our food that help decrease the risk of not just acute illness, but of chronic disease. And really one of my aims as a pediatrician, as a mother, and as a health and wellness coach is to help people feel good in the moment, but to also decrease the risk of chronic disease. And we know that 80 to 90% of chronic diseases can be prevented through our diet and lifestyle choices. We can do that with every single bite we take, every meal, every snack. We can include some whole plant foods in there that are giving us antioxidants, that are giving us fiber, giving us hydration with water. And you know, those are just two of the main things I like to talk about. Because it's just obvious that when we're eating this highly processed diet that's high in animal products, high in sugar, high in added fats, we're just not getting those things. We're not getting the fiber and antioxidants that can really contribute to our health, well-being, and longevity. Perfect. So fiber and antioxidants are the main things. And fiber is only found in plant foods, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's no fiber in animal products because animal products are mainly muscle, which doesn't have fiber in it, (laughs) or secretions like milk and eggs, which don't have fiber in them. So nothing that comes from an animal has fiber, but we can eat all our fiber. We can get all our fiber from whole plant foods. And for adults who transition to a plant-based diet, one of the kind of common complaints can be that they maybe go too fast and start eating a lot more fiber than they're used to, and specifically the type of fiber that's found in legumes, so beans and peas and lentils and things like that. So if you start at a young age, does that mean that the gut will be better at doing that and adapt earlier on? Yeah, and anybody can adapt. I think the key factor and what I tell people, especially those that are not used to eating a lot of fiber, is start low and go slow and let those gut bacteria adapt. But really, once you start eating this way and once you adapt to it, you're going to crave those foods because that's what your gut bacteria are telling you to eat. That happens in both directions, right? So if we're eating a highly processed diet that's high in fat, high in sugar, we are fostering the gut bacteria that eats that. And so then those bacteria are like, give me more of that. And so that contributes to those cravings. But whenever we purposely start to integrate more whole plant foods, more of these more health promoting foods, we are going to create a community of gut bugs that help support those habits. 
So it really, it's really beneficial to deliberately try to make those changes and it doesn't have to be overnight. But what's really amazing is that they've done studies to show that we can completely transform our gut bacteria in 24 to 48 hours. So it's not something that feels like it has to take a really long time either. Like you can make massive changes in your gut bacteria pretty quickly. That's really cool. Um, And before children start to eat proper foods with bits in them, or, or I don't know how to describe it, at the start they will be breastfeeding. I know we already said it's safe for all stages of life, but for people that can't maybe quite picture it, can you start at any age and what type of foods would you first start with when a child starts eating? Yes. So a lot of babies, especially if they're breastfed, are, are vegan for a long time anyway, because we're not giving meat to little tiny babies. And if they're breastfed, they're just drinking mom's milk. If they're formula fed, they may be having some cow's milk protein there, depending on what formula parents choose. We start complementary foods or solids between four and six months of age when babies are showing readiness that they're ready to start feeding. And first foods are plant foods, you know, where For my patients, I'm recommending that they start with the leafy greens, well-cooked, start one new food every day to get them exposed to those flavors of the bitter greens, and then we progress on. There are some differences when it comes to allergens. This is something that I have discussed in three different podcast episodes on my podcast, Veggie Doctor Radio. So parents might be interested in checking that out because there are some caveats, especially for families that have higher risk of developing food allergies. They may want to consider introducing a few animal products for a short amount of time to decrease the risk of developing those allergies. But each family has to decide for themselves what their risk are, what their risk tolerance is. So that is a caveat based on science that needs to be discussed. But for the most part, it's easy to raise your baby plant-based because that's what you're giving your babies at the beginning. You're giving them vegetables, you're giving them fruits, you're giving them whole grains, you're giving them legumes. And then you start with the nut butters and seed butters to decrease their risk of developing life-threatening uh, allergies. And so it's pretty simple. If parents were to choose formula for some time, there is plant-based formula as well, right? Well, it's a little bit tricky in the U.S. because we don't actually have a 100% plant-based formula here. We have soy formulas, but because all formulas have to have vitamin D in them as Mm -hmm. a supplement inside, the soy-based formulas use lanolin for their vitamin D. So they're not truly vegan. Okay. For those that are nitpicky, that's going to be a problem. For people that are just like, well, that's not a big deal for me, then you know that's going to be the best option, the soy-based. But there are some companies that are in the process of creating infant formulas that would be plant-based and organic. It just takes a while to get those things authorized and approved. And you know, so there's a lot of regulations. Okay. We have clarified that it's definitely safe and that there are some significant benefits over a traditional type of Western diet. What are some things that parents need to be aware of and potential pitfalls in terms of macronutrients or micronutrients, vitamins, things like that, that maybe require a bit more planning? And I think that a lot of the time people will kind of say, oh, well, it takes a lot of planning, so that's not really natural or easy, but then any healthful diet pattern does require planning anyway. 
Right. And that's what I like to point out is that any conscientious parent is going to be thinking about what they're feeding their child and making sure that they're optimizing or maximizing what they need to. But it is very important for parents to realize that we cannot control what our children eat. So our job as parents is to be the one that selects and prepares the foods and offers them to our children. Our children are going to decide if and how much they're going to eat of that food. And that goes into some of the intuitive eating things that I think we're going to talk about later. But when it comes to macronutrients, the number one concern parents always have is about protein. I'm not worried about protein. As long as your child is consuming sufficient calories from a variety of foods, they're getting sufficient protein. That's not a concern. So don't worry about that. But when it comes to micronutrients, there are some things that we need to be thoughtful about when it comes to supplementation. All breastfed babies, regardless if they're going to be vegan or not, need to be supplemented with vitamin D. And here in the United States, we can do that by directly supplementing the babies or super supplementing the mothers so that they make enough through their breast milk. And this is important to decrease the risk of rickets, which is softening of the bones. So very important thing to do. Also in certain parts of the country, children of all ages probably should consider taking a supplement because we don't get enough sunlight certain times of year. I live in a state in the United States where between November 1st and April 1st, it's really difficult to get enough vitamin D production from sun because of the orientation of the earth and because of the weather, it's cold. You would have to be outside, arms and legs fully exposed for two hours in the middle of the day to produce enough vitamin D through the sunlight on your skin. And most people are just not going to do that, you know? So I know I'm not because yeah. I'm cold. So taking a vitamin D supplement is a good way to just have that insurance that you're getting enough vitamin D. And vitamin D is important. It's important for keeping our bones strong and remodeling bones, but also it's really important for our immune system and our gut health. So there's a lot of different reasons, especially now with COVID, we have found that vitamin D is one of the important links to help decrease our risk of severe COVID. So that's a big one. Another one for all the plant-based people or predominantly plant-based people, both children and adults, is going to be B12. So there are some myths going around that you don't need to supplement B12. Well, that's not true and it's not safe to think that way. You definitely need to supplement B12. Now, you don't need to supplement until after the baby's done breastfeeding or off formula. So you don't necessarily need to supplement breastfeeding babies like, you know, for lactating moms. But if a mom is vegan, she should be taking her B12 supplement if she's breastfeeding. Well, anytime, but especially if she's breastfeeding. But once children are weaned from the breast and from formula, then they do need to be on a B12 supplement. So that one's important as well. You can get it from fortified foods, but I'm one of those people that I feel like, you know, because children's appetite and intake can be hit or miss, and it's normal, especially during toddlerhood, just reassure yourself that they're getting enough by giving them a supplement. And then the third one is going to be the omega-3 DHA which we don't have any formal recommendations about yet, but is probably one of those things that's becoming increasingly uh, more thought of as something that we should be supplementing. We do supplement pregnant moms here in the United States with the DHA and with the young children under the age of three, it's probably something that we should consider. The good news is that there are plant-based DHA algal supplements made by microalgae. So you don't have to worry about using fish oil 
that are appropriate. And there's lots of different formulations available for that. So those would be the top three ones. And then there are individual differences based upon, you know, issues the child may be facing. Like if there's a child that has lots of allergies and they can't consume any nuts and seeds or legumes, then potentially you may need to consider supplementing zinc. If it's a family that doesn't use any iodized salt or they're like low salt and they don't use anything that has iodine or any iodide fortified foods, then they may consider taking iodine. But those are all individual differences in families. And so there's other things to consider, but for the most part, those are the top three. Great. Thank you. Um, and one thing which I feel would will often come up as well due to the almost propaganda that happens is milk and dairy and calcium and bone health which I think would be a common concern for many people in adults but especially getting a bit nervous about it around growing children so what would you tell those people? So I used to be a milk pusher because that's what I was taught in medical school and residency until yeah. I started realizing that milk was hurting a lot of people and you know probably causing more harm than benefits and I believe based upon the different studies I've seen and you know things that I've been able to observe myself is that probably our intake of calcium doesn't need to be as high as is currently recommended. However, even if you want to be completely safe and you want to make sure that you are following all the recommended calcium intakes, you can do that safely and easily through a plant-based diet, not just through the whole foods like greens and beans, they have a lot of calcium in there, but also through fortified plant foods. So fortified plant milks, calcium set, tofu, those kinds of foods have lots of calcium in them. So it is completely possible to get sufficient calcium through a completely 100% plant-based diet. And you're going to save yourself some of the potential ill effects of dairy intake, which for Kids, I see lots of constipation, chronic abdominal pain, lactose intolerance for the babies. You have the cow's milk protein intolerance, which causes babies to have colic and fussiness and bloody stools and those kinds of things. And then as the kids get older, potentially worsening acne, menstrual dysregulation. And if you want to talk about long-term effects, potential increase in cancer. So all of those things we'd like to avoid, regardless if a family is not going to be fully plant-based, even for my families that are not willing to completely eliminate dairy, eliminate milk, I advise them to keep it very, very low in the diet because I really feel that especially as the amount of dairy, cow's milk dairy and cow's milk go up, I start seeing adverse health effects in my patients. I remember reading in the nutrition part of the pediatric textbook just over a year ago because I was interested in it. We don't we weren't actually exposed to pediatric nutrition, but I just read about it. And it was talking about cow's milk protein allergy and then it was mentioning how you would reintroduce it and I was thinking why why just not reintroduce it at all? Um so yeah, that's interesting, but I feel like it's so ingrained that you should be having dairy and a lot of cultures consume dairy products as well. Exactly. And, you know, that's what I was taught too. So I had all these workarounds, like there's mm -hmm. something called a purple cow where you add prune juice to the cow's milk so that they don't get constipated. Oh. Or, you know, a lot of, there's the myth about lactose-free products, which 20 to 30% of people who consume lactose-free cow's milk quote lactose-free, right? It's still going to cause them 
symptoms of lactose intolerance. So there's all of these workarounds that we have created because we are based in the belief that cow's milk is essential for our health. So when we start with that underlying belief, that's when you start doing all of these weird things that don't seem to make sense. Where you're just like, if you have a problem, why don't you just avoid it? No, yeah. no, no, because you need it. It's essential. Otherwise, your bones are going to disintegrate. Well, that's not true because my bones definitely haven't disintegrated. And I've been vegan plant-based for over 10 years now. So that's good. That's reassuring. Um, and you mentioned calcium set tofu. And just quickly, in another podcast, I have discussed soy at length, but mm-hmm. we know it's very beneficial for adults. And there are no issues in terms of hormones and things like that with children consuming soy. Is that right? Correct. And I always recommend, of course, that we stick to the more whole forms of soy and not the soy protein isolate, the more processed mm-hmm. up. I'm not saying you can't ever have it, but I wouldn't focus on that. I would get your edamame, your soy milk, your tofu, your tempeh, those kinds of things are going to be more health promoting. But we we love soy here. Soy milk is my favorite. I just love the natural creaminess without having to have any additives or thickeners in there. It's just naturally just creamy and delicious. And my kids love tofu and it's so easy to make. It's so easy to prepare and make in different flavors and it's satisfying. It's got a nice chewiness to it. And yes, it's very health promoting for a lot of different reasons. So I don't have people avoid it. However, if somebody is completely afraid of soy, it is one legume among 400. So mm-hmm. you're going to be okay. You, If you really are afraid of it, if you're convinced that it's going to give you man boobs. And believe me, I have I have a smaller chest. I eat a lot of soy and my boobs have not gotten bigger. If that were the case, believe me, I would definitely be eating lots of soy so I can have a, <laughs> you know, bigger bra size. But no, it does not work that way. It definitely does not happen to my kids at all. But if you really want to avoid it, you can avoid it. It's just yeah. one of 400 different beans. And now they even make tofu out of chickpeas and things mm. like that. You can make tofu out of other beans too if you wanted to, not just soy. Um, but I think it's perfectly safe and health promoting. Perfect. Thank you for that. I'm quite interested in intuitive eating since I came across it. I think it's so important and it's so different from the current kind of overwhelming diet culture mindset that we grow up in. Um, And I think it's so important to start from a young age. So what is the role of intuitive eating in your practice with children and young people? Well, when it comes to parenting, it does have a little bit of a different twist because parents are not necessarily concerned about changing the size of their children's bodies, although they are, but they start out from my kid's not eating enough. My kid's not eating enough, period, or my kid's not eating enough of this or not eating enough of that. And so what happens is that parents start interfering in their child's natural intuitive ability to detect their hunger and their fullness by directing their child to either eat more or less of their food. And then slowly but surely over time, parents help children unlearn that intuitive ability by about age five. 
Intuitive eating itself is a concept that was developed by two dietitians in the late 80s. They published their first edition of their book, Intuitive Eating, in the early 90s. And it is based on 10 principles. And so if you're interested in this, definitely check out their book. It's called Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli, Elise Resch. But I took those concepts and I simplified it down for parents to understand. This is something that exists. It's very important because intuitive eaters not only are they able to direct their hunger and their fullness, eat the amount that they need, but they enjoy their food more and they have perfectly healthy health markers like cholesterol and blood pressure and those kinds of things. And what happens to parents is because they get stressed about their child not eating enough, eating too much, or if they have a child that has happens to be genetically smaller or a child that happens to be genetically larger, then parents start interfering with that and the child unlearns it. And then we end up in the pool of everybody else that is not eating intuitively and eating for external reasons. So that might be the time of day or the diet they're on or how many macros are supposed to eat or how many calories are supposed to eat or some sort of meal plan. And that's when things start to get dysregulated, dysregulated in our body and in our minds about how and what to eat. And it can be very, very simple. So I combined that intuitive eating principles with Ellen Satter's division of responsibilities, which is what I referred to earlier, that the parent's job is to decide what, when, and where. So what are you going to offer the child? What time of day and where are they going to sit? But then once you've made those decisions and you've prepared the food and you've offered it to your food, your job is done. Now it becomes your child's job to decide if and how much they're going to eat. And you do not cross over into their autonomy. And that's very difficult for parents at the beginning, but you get better at it with time and it takes practice and trial and error. But it really helps support and foster and sustain this intuitive ability that children have because you're showing them that you trust them. And in turn, they learn to trust themselves. And so you're creating this competent eater so that when they grow up, they go off to college and they have their lives, they're able to have confidence around their food choices, around their bodies, around how they're going to live their healthy lifestyles. And that's what I really want to help parents do. Thank you. It's good to hear that someone's kind of pushing for that to happen at an earlier age. Um, And... What do you advise parents do with picky eaters? So the parents that stress out when their child won't eat this or that and will only want one thing, for example, do you offer them the same thing multiple times? When do you give up? And how do you deal with it without it becoming that sort of fight where you end up kind of pushing into their autonomy? That's where the division of responsibilities becomes very important, but also for parents to realize that they're the gatekeepers of nutrition in the home. So ultimately, you're the one that's going to decide what you're going to offer your child. But also that parents need to understand that during toddlerhood, during the ages of one through five, 85% of their of parents will describe their children as picky eaters, 85%. So that means it's normal. Mm. That means it's everybody. You know (laughs) what I'm saying? And so if parents expect that, if parents understand that during toddlerhood, the intake is naturally going to go down because they're not growing as fast as they were when they were infants. And so they don't need as many calories. 
and parents realize that and they're not forcing food, then it's going to help the relationship too. Because when parents force food and when parents obligate a child to eat a certain food, it actually increases pickiness and selectivity of children. So what we want to do is we want to trust them. We want to continue to offer variety and not get stuck in the trap of, okay, well, my child will only eat chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. So I'm only going to give them chicken nuggets and mac and cheese every dinner because that's all they will eat. Then what you're doing is you're propagating that behavior. You're just, you're just making it worse. You're making it more solid for them to just choose that one thing. So yes, you can give them the mac and cheese and chicken nuggets, but also offer broccoli, also offer black beans, decrease the amount of chicken nuggets and mac and cheese that you're offering and start giving a a variety of other foods. And then don't stress out and don't panic when they take that plate and they only eat those two things that they want off of it. You have to keep offering and not get stressed out about it. And then work with your pediatrician to ensure that your child is growing on their curves and developing as they should. And definitely there's going to be a very small percentage of kids that really do have extreme pickiness and it's a disorder and there could be some health problems there, but it's a very small percentage of children. And when you work with your pediatrician, you can identify what these kids are and what other resources might be able to help you. But for the majority of the children, it's just going to be following that division of responsibilities, parents continuing to offer a wide variety of health-promoting foods, and then just take a deep breath and sit back and wait because it (laughs) will get better in a few years and it does change over time. Great. And does the, would you advise the same thing for a supplement? So if a child doesn't like the taste of a supplement, I mean, maybe they've Maybe you wouldn't offer them like pills or tablets, but are they like, would you try a different kind of gummy supplement or like a liquid supplement? Or like, how would you go about that if people are stressed about their children not getting B12 and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yes, because that can be tricky. And there thankfully is a wide variety of different formulations of supplements. What I tell parents is that the best supplement is that the supplement that your child is willing to take. (laughs) So go for a different brand, go for a different formulation, and then try it. I know there's a lot of practitioners out there that are like, oh, your child should never have a gummy supplement. Those are the worst. It has so much sugar in it. But really, it's not that big of a deal. It's only once a day. Make sure that they're brushing their teeth well. And if that's the only one that they're willing to take, then that's really going to help you give you peace of mind. So I'm not stressed out about. There's also liquid ones. There's ones that you can put into their food. There's fortified foods too. But like I said, with the fortified foods, it's one of those things that you have to know that if they are taking regularly and taking well, I'm fine with it. If it's very hit or miss, you're better off with a supplement that you can give them. Thank you. And have you encountered people in your practice where maybe the family has or the parents or one of the parents has transitioned to a plant-based diet later in life and then they want their entire family to eat the same way and then there is resistance from the children maybe they're a bit older they feel like it's different compared to the other kids at school they don't want to give up what what kind of advice would you give to people in those positions 
Yeah, this is fairly common because this is usually how it happens. You know, plant-based nutrition is still not mainstream. And so mm-hmm. somebody in the family is going to find it and get super excited about it and want to convert everybody all of a sudden. And it works sometimes. Like it worked in my family because my children were smaller. They were 18 months and six years old. And my six-year-old has never been picky. He's like his mama. We love food. We love to eat. We not met any food we don't like. So that worked out really well for me. But if you have adolescents, teens in your house, sometimes it can be a little tricky. So what I tell people, adults, is that there's a couple of things to realize. One is that especially with other adults and older children in your house, forcing things on them usually backfires. So it's more about leading by example, starting to integrate some of those meals into the diet, starting to try different things. And then the second thing is when it comes to talking about food, you don't have to call everything a plant-based whatever or a vegan whatever. It's be like, hey, we're going to have Southwestern Chipotle black bean tacos Mm. tonight. I mean, how does that sound? It sounds amazing. Instead of being like, we're going to have vegan tacos. Everybody freaks out and be like, (laughs) ah, it's going to taste like cardboard and there's no meat and I'm going to die. You know, so just be aware that whenever some people think about vegan and plant-based, they automatically think restriction. So you may refrain from using that word and then just start changing it up and start integrating more whole plant foods. But when it comes to health, when it comes to well-being and longevity, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So if you know that your family has been in that 60 to 70% ultra processed foods phase, even if you just start putting in more fruits and vegetables, putting in beans, because beans, I will tell you, I know this 100% with 100% certainty that Americans do not eat very many beans because I survey all my families. So there are some families that are only preparing beans once a week, once a week, 21 meals, one time a week. How can you do it two, three, four times a week? My preference is if you're eating beans at least once every single day. So seven times a week minimum. How can you get to that? You don't have to change anything else, but how can you add more beans? How can you add more fruits and vegetables? Start there. Don't feel like you have to make an overnight change 100% right away and lead by example, be very patient and don't panic because everything's gonna be okay. Because I think what happens too with moms, we love our children, we love our partners so much. We read some of this information and we think everybody's gonna automatically die of some disease right away. And so it doesn't work that way. If you start making small habits that are also more likely to be sustainable, it's going to catch on and you're gonna be able to keep it up for a long time. And that's gonna make a huge effect on health, well being, and longevity. So take a deep breath, do the best you can, love yourself, love your family, and, and don't worry. It's 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 gonna happen. You just have to be patient. Is there something that we haven't covered yet that's a common objection or fear that people have, do you think? Well, I think another thing that's very similar that happens, even if there's one family that everybody in the family is on board with plant-based nutrition, we don't live in a bubble, right? So we have Mm -hmm. our nuclear family, but we live in the world (laughs) and the world is not vegan. So some parents worry about, well, 
What do I do with my child when they go over to grandma's or when they're at school? And there's no right or wrong. And you as a family have to decide how you're going to handle everything. If you're able to provide replacements or alternatives, if your children are older and they're really wanting to participate in other activities and they want to eat that food, you have to have those conversations with your family and decide how you want to approach it. I recommend that if your child is curious and they really want to try stuff, not to be super strict about it because that tends to cause a rebound. And when it comes to intuitive eating, when somebody is starting to feel restricted, that's when they might become obsessed with the food and Mm -hmm. then really binge on it. So you want to just handle each of these situations thoughtfully and mindfully and decide what's going to be best overall long-term rather than panic in the moment and just avoid being this all or nothing mindset where you have to be a hundred percent quote clean eating or something bad's going to happen because that's just not the way the human body works. As your child grows, as they go through different stages, you're going to come up to different challenges. And each time it's an opportunity to reevaluate what you're doing at home, how you're going to handle eating out, how you're going to handle parties and celebrations and going to family members. And there's no right or wrong. So each family has to decide what's right for them. Perfect. Thank you. Because my podcast is called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, I like to end by asking guests, what is one thing that you wish that all healthcare professionals were taught early on? And it doesn't need to be related to what we've just been discussing, but it can be. My dream would be that all medical schools would teach lifestyle medicine. And I wish that they would teach all students that regardless of their ultimate specialty, they can integrate lifestyle medicine. If we could integrate lifestyle medicine, not just in pediatrics and family medicine, but oncology, surgery. Mm. I even had an orthopedic surgeon on that does lifestyle medicine. We can really transform people's lives. We could just change the whole world. I mean, it is, I believe that it is the tool for ultimate transformation of our planet. If all doctors practice lifestyle medicine. We still need all the specialties. I'm not saying we all can be just lifestyle medicine doctors. We need all the specialties. But if all the different specialties learned and integrated and applied lifestyle medicine, this would be a different world when it came to health. Absolutely. Yeah. At the moment, it can be, it's either a special interest for someone or an afterthought or just a quick thing you consider before you start meds or something like that. But it's so important to remember that it can be at the forefront and alongside all of the conventional medicine as well. Yeah. I mean, just imagine if it were the default. Yeah. You know, you you get a diagnosis, you go in and they're like, okay, we're going to go through all the lifestyle medicine principles first. And then these are the options, the other surgeries, medications. I mean, can you imagine that if it were everybody just knew that lifestyle medicine was going to be the default? It would just be amazing. It would be amazing that I share that dream with you. Change is coming, though, hopefully, and people are more aware of it and the evidence is more readily available and stuff like that. Yes. Little by little. Yeah, here's hoping. And thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your expertise. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. If you did, why not share it with a friend, family member or colleague? 
Check out the show notes with links to anything mentioned in the episode on lindadars.com forward slash witlims23. And remember to follow me at witlims on Instagram and Twitter in order to stay up to date and give me feedback. I love hearing from you. And again, share this episode and others around. I massively appreciate when you do. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and I'll catch you again in another episode. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Bye.